Welcome to Casual Watch Talk, the podcast from the Casual Watch Reviewer YouTube channel. Join us as we talk everything watches from watch collecting, the latest horology news and interviews. If you're not already subscribed, subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Let's dive into the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to episode 19 of Casual Watch Talk. I'm joined again by my co-host Chris. How have you been, Chris? Hey Sam, good, good evening. We are going to switch it up a little bit this week because we've got a very interesting interview. We're going to be joined by Ryan and Reagan from Veya Watches. Now, if anyone's familiar with my channel, you'll know that I've covered Veya quite a few times. Really interesting uh, pair of guys. They, they originally assembled the watches in LA. You're going to learn all about micro brands, how they go through their design processes. We always like to start these shows with Chris. What have you been wearing this week? All right, this week, uh, back to the uh, Bell & Ross Zen 103 chronograph. Uh, had a great discussion with a bunch of our uh, folks over on the Facebook group. Uh, let me uh, let me give a uh, quick shout out to, uh, let's see. Oh, sorry. It was uh, Lee and uh, Jeff were over there. We were, we were talking about uh, Bell and & Ross and Zen and, and, and fixing and things. So, so if you haven't already, definitely join us over there on the uh, on the Facebook group, Casual Watch Talk. Absolutely. And yeah, a shout out to Jeffrey. He's was congratulating on me on being at nearly 10,000 subs on my YouTube so channel. And I, I swear, and I need to go back and look in the archives, but I'm sure Jeffrey was like in the, the first 10. Like, so he's stuck with me for the best part of That's four great. years. That's great. That's uh, great. Yeah, it always offers a lot of uh, good feedback and positive encouragement. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Anyway, have you, what's been your watch obsession this week? So we've still been in our stay-at-home orders, and I've certainly yep. been looking at a lot of watches. I know, right? Yeah. Well, speaking of stay-at-home, my watch obsession this week is my buddy Sam left a package on my door a couple, uh, a couple of days ago that had the Ultimate Turtle in it. And I have, my obsession has been figuring out kind of what was up with it. It was... Uh, Losing a little bit of time, you know, something to take a look at. Uh, but got it on the time grapher after, uh, and by the way, I had no problem just immediately dunking it in soapy water. So <laughs> your watch is clean now. <laughs> and um, uh, put it on the time grapher. And uh, looks like the seconds hand is, is just ever so slightly dragging on the crystal, which is something that, you know, uh, Seiko modders, uh, you know, when you, when you deal with the, you know, when you change the movement in the crystal, which... This watch has got a whole bunch of different stuff on it. Um, and Sam's petrified of me touching the hands, but uh, I can report uh, no issues. And uh, we, I got it uh, dialed in and, and running in tip-top shape. Oh, great. And yeah, thanks for doing that, Chris. This uh, Ultimate Turtle has been quite the project, but it's been very rewarding because I still do love that watch. But um, So I've been wearing, again, my little titanium Citizen. I've really become, and we'll talk about this at, later but i've really become fond of quartz again and i don't know where that's coming from and we mentioned it the last couple of times on the on the podcast you know maybe it's the nature of uh, grab and go and and just having something you know that you know is going to be reliable and ready to wear yeah absolutely absolutely and my watch obsession this week and i think it's a result of last week's podcast is i can't stop looking at that 42 millimeter new blue brightling super ocean it's captivating i mean the 42 does it the 42 does it yeah 
if I didn't, if I didn't already have, uh, it's, it's, it's definitely, it's very nice. It's very nice. And I, I, with the Super Ocean 2, that the big thing that they did was they changed. And if you guys haven't seen a picture of it, they, they had the, all the Arabic numerals, you know, one through 12. And then they had the little 24, you know, they had just wait this, the version that the previous version, I think two years ago, uh, it just had just so much information on the dial and just so much going on. Um, and I think, I think Breitling listened to their, to their customers, their feedback, um, which is, you know, certainly we'll discuss, uh, is, is hard to do for these, for these larger conglomeration, you know, giant brands. Um, and I think they listened and they took a whole bunch of text off the dial, cleaned it up, Breitling logo, chronometer, uh, simple layout looks, I think it looks the it looks the business. It's great. Okay, everyone, we're going to pause early on for and have our break early. And then when we come back, we're going to be joined by Ryan and Reagan from Vea Watches. Hi, guys. Welcome back. Well, for our second part of the segment, we are very lucky to be interviewing Ryan and Reagan from Vea Watches. I've been reviewing Vea Watches. I just looked since 2018, and that was March, so that was nearly two years ago, that very early model that you did, that quartz model, which impressed me. And then the models have just got more and more refined over time, including the addition to the autos, which I think was probably your most requested from the fans. So thank you both for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much, Sam. We appreciate it. It's, uh, it's nice to be finally doing this interview. I know we've now been connected for years, which is, is pretty awesome. So we're happy to be here. Yeah, it's uh, it's great to be on. And yeah, it's, it's fantastic, Sam, as well, because, you know, uh, you, you caught us right at the beginning of, of the journey in many ways. Uh, that 2018 model was uh, something we were proud of. So it was our first real model that we were sending out to reviewers. Um, but yeah, hopefully, hopefully we only have uh, good things to come and hopefully we can uh, keep doing this. For listeners that aren't familiar with the brand, I guess I'd love to hear your guys' version of the background, how you got started, etc. What excited you about watches? Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll get that started. So Reagan and I uh, worked together at a, a digital marketing company back in uh, 2015. I specifically have always been interested in watches. You know, I had G-Shocks growing up, Seikos. I, I had a little stint where I was buying and selling watches um, on eBay and that sort of thing, and that went quiet. And then uh, in 2015, started kind of researching the watch industry and seeing opportunity to make pretty decent quality watches uh, at an affordable price. So basically, right when the idea struck, um, Reagan was, was again on my team at that startup and uh, grabbed him and it, we kind of took off from there. It was just, you know, designing and looking at new designs and, uh, you know, the whole path together yeah from that that point in 2015 one of the things uh, that that definitely strikes me ryan is uh your your marketing is excellent so i i was going to ask this question and i'm glad you sort of opened with that I, my hunch was that um so very cool uh looking at your site looking at the way you uh your photos your videos your stuff uh, definitely uh that that clean image focused um that's that's super important for for any brand to rise above people are often surprised because i, I mean we're, we're proud obviously of the stuff we put out there the website the video the content in general um but i think a lot of people are surprised when they realize or when they do learn that the team is just ryan and myself uh so we are we are a micro brand of course um you know uh but we've always taken yeah that's always been a top priority and you know i think that's common uh to, you know you can use branding to try and make yourself look bigger uh than you are and and uh and or at least just uh, it can be a real um 
you know, it can be a, an advantage uh, to kind of help gain trust because, you know, hopefully in the world of watches, um, when it comes to making a purchase, you know, strong presentation, even on an online website or the brand message that helps kind of communicate that, hey, these guys probably have their head on their shoulders when it comes to design decisions, um, when it comes to industrial design and product design. Um, and, and, and that, I think, is just a, a, and all of the big brands, of course, um, do both well. You can't, uh, Rolex does product design incredibly well, but the brand is impeccable. And those two things uh, live kind of symbiotically in a nice way. Yeah, so important when you're first starting out and you have your website and you just, you want to make it so that that process, it, your, your, your customers are trusting that process, that you you didn't you didn't skimp on anything and that you didn't you don't look like some fly by night organization you need to sort of back that up in the same way that I think you guys have really um backed it up with your products and you know Sam and I will definitely go into a little bit more of that yeah sure. and i mean the the other thing too is like uh we're you know we're a two person company now and we're a micro brand of course but i think just like a lot of of the smaller american brands and either uh brands outside the united states as well at our stage is you know we have big ambitions and so one um reality of that is there are there are brands in the community that you know that do operate with with very basic websites um and then they, they don't really rely on that model because you know they go to trade shows or they go and a lot of their sales are in person or whatever it may be obviously that's a great model you can be very successful and have a really really comfortable lifestyle doing that but uh you can't scale that infinitely and you can't there's, there's only so large that you can make that where we always had this vision of you know a, a really big uh story and of course uh, in this day and age, um, particularly with with our resources and only two people, that means being able to sell online effectively. And so that is why we've always invested in that. I remember the first questions that I asked you was that incredible uh, advert you did with the spear fisherman. And I was asking you about it and you were like, oh, yeah, there was like our two friends that we videoed. <laughs> it was one of the, I think that was one of the best watch adverts I'd ever seen on social media because this is what amazes me about the way that you guys embraced social media marketing you do it better than certainly Seiko or some of the bigger brands have you ever sort of thought about or discussed between yourselves why the big brands are just so awful really at social media marketing uh we we talk about it I mean obviously Seiko is like the the, the cornerstone for affordable quality, just like craftsmanship, right? Incredible, beautiful watches, but they have almost zero marketing. Um, I think, you know, a lot of it is maybe complacency. You know, they've already established footholds in the market. They have a certain amount of popularity and they have a certain amount of reputation that just exists. And, you know, there's not really a reason for them to push social. I think, um, you know, especially listening to the last few of your podcasts, as times get more challenging and as micro brands start to take more market share, I think some of those legacy brands were, they're just going to have to do social. They're going to have to hire, you know, new and, and build new teams to, uh, to start to take back that market share as, you know, cause, cause brands like us didn't really exist 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And, and I think it's also just the nature, it has nothing to do with, you know, Seiko in, in many cases, it's just the nature of organizations, the natures of nature of bureaucracies and, you know, I, Ryan and I've worked at tech companies of different sizes and typically, you know, the bigger the company gets, the less um, ability that or the less uh, meaning that individual passion necessarily can, can have on a campaign or anything else, because, you know, it's a collective effort. Um, obviously, having a really passionate CEO or a great CMO or marketing or even a great agency, those can those can help. 
Um, but you can never replace um, the value of just one person alone in their garage. And if you really like have a story to tell or if you're a filmmaker or whatever else, you can't really translate that um, into an organization of uh, 50 people, let alone 500 or 5,000 people. Unfortunately, there's just not a mechanism to make that a reality. And that's, an, that's a small advantage that micro brands and, and companies like us have is that, you know, if we want to do it, we can do it. If we think it's cool, that's about the only, you know, that's like the boardroom meeting is between Ryan and I being like, let's go ahead and do it. Yeah. Your, your flexibility, um, you know, it, it, that it, it's, it's perfect. You know, it, when you're, when you're small, when you're a small company, that flexibility, you, ha- you know, just have to just attack that because you, like you said, Seiko making these large decisions. Now, one of the decisions that you guys, that you guys went back. So you went back after your first campaign and you redesigned your watches you spent 10 months redesigning the fit the finish the various pieces how was that process we want to make the watch as good as possible so um a really intriguing part of that process and part of what triggered that process i actually don't know if it was like a chicken and egg thing but bringing assembly to the u.s was massive um because we you know instead of having your manufacturers and assembly teams overseas you're now like we're literally bringing batches of watches to our assembly teams um, and they're complaining to us if there's problems or if there's things that make assembly difficult or there, if there's things that are going to fail. And so that triggered a lot of our improvements. Um, and then from an aesthetic perspective, and I'll let Reagan speak more to it, um, I know a huge step for us was going from off-the-shelf cases to our current case, which we're like incredibly proud of. It's really beautiful and really refined. Um, but yeah, I mean, for us, it's just even with our existing watches, we're, we're more happy than ever. But, you know, we have a batch uh, that's upcoming. Uh, everything's done in batches for us. So we do batches generally every two to three months. Um, But our upcoming batch, even on watches that are fantastic, they're still getting changes. They're still getting tweaks to the hands, tweaks to the loom, um, some technical tweaks as well, Um, you know, changing case structure to be basically to have more longevity, things that are going to last. But it's really just, you know, if our assembly team tells us something or, you know, Reagan will hit me up and say, you know, I don't like the way that the text appears on the dial. And we'll have a discussion about it and say, oh, you know, we could do it better. And, and so we just continue to make changes. Yeah. Well, just on that particular the instance of the 10 month redesign, um, one of the, I think, uh, stepping off points and, and actually the first watch that, that Sam uh, that you reviewed, that was our kind of our V2 case. And, and the big distinguishing factor in that is um, breaking away from uh, Ryan mentioned the off the shelf cases and often a. Uh, designation of that and there are great brands there are multi-million dollar micro brands that are still using more or less off-the-shelf cases it's kind of what you would call a sandwich case design where it's more or less just metal rings um, and then they're pressed together and they're typically all at a 90 uh, degree angle it, it it's it, it's functional it, it more or less uh, works and it, and it can be you know unnoticeable to 90 percent of consumers but what you like for our current case, we have this beautiful rounding curvature, this beautiful brushed finish, uh, highlight chamfering along the lugs, things that you would see on, you know, that you would maybe expect on a $3,000 case. We're trying to offer that case, that same case finishing, which is still just steel, um, at, you know, at the $150 price point. So, uh, that, that was like a really, really big component of it. And, and really, um, it's just a, a struggle with any type of industrial design. There are some factories that most factories cannot do that. They don't have the capacity. And, and however, you can fly over there. You can go on Alibaba. You can search and 
you know, and, and in many cases it can be a challenge because as a micro brand, you may be, you know, a million dollars in revenue and you be tied to this case that you're working on. But there's a challenge of like, you know, this, this factory can only take it to seven out of 10. And, and what, what do you do at that point? We were lucky enough or, you know, it just as things played out, we, we were com comfortable with our case. We had already sold a few thousand of our initial design, but we had that opportunity to go back to the drawing board, work with the, what we think is one of the best uh, case manufacturers in the world and, and really pump out something that, you know, could grow us into, you know, a next level brand. One of the, one of the really interesting things as well is you really embraced Kickstarter think quite early on and I remember that a lot of people were asking you about the a mechanical watch and you did produce that on Kickstarter and you just blew that target out of the water I can't imagine what your original target was I, I, I got a feeling it was around the sort of 20 to 30 thousand dollar mark but you ended up doing north of 200k 223 nearly it, it, I mean did that surprise you guys yeah yeah I mean Reagan and I the night we launched it we were you know it was like uh, we we had the early release at midnight and we're sitting in the room and just saw the counter clicking up. And I think at Reagan, what was it in the first hour? It was like $80,000 or something ridiculous. We couldn't believe it. Like we were so excited. You know, we had a, we had a good feeling about it because we surveyed people so heavily. We involved the, all the consumers into the process really deeply and, and allowed them to help with the design. So we knew there were going to be people coming out, but the numbers were absolutely incredible. I mean, it was, it was really, really cool to see a showing of people that were that excited about the watches. Um, and then, you know, forward fast, it's been, I guess, eight months, 10 months. And now all these consumers have their watches on their wrists and they're very happy about them. So it, it was a very incredible process. Yeah, it's always a, it's always a surprise in the sense that, um, you know, uh, we're in kind of the, you could say maybe uh, five years ago, 10 years ago, it was the initial era of, you know, selling things online. And that's where the movements and the Daniel Wellingtons had success with that. Now, I think we're in a better and more interesting phase. And I think what will be a more long-term phase is what is it like to sell watches or anything online where you have a direct uh, communication and back and forth with the people that are buying? It's much more organic, uh, but it really takes you, even though we're an online company, it takes you back to a hundred years ago when you have the local shop on Main Street and you know every one of your customers by name and you have a kind of a neighborly relationship with them. That's, that's, I mean, we're, we're, it's new to us. It's new to a lot of brands because, you know, we're, we're, we don't know what to expect and we're always continuously surprised. Like, does anyone actually care that much to do this? And it, it, to use a small example, like Ryan and I are going to try to do our first live stream. We did a live stream two weeks ago with Worn and Wound and it went well and we thought it was a cool format. And, and we're going to try our first live stream on uh, this Friday. And, but we don't know. We don't know if five people will show up to listen. We maybe 500 will. So it's the same thing with the Kickstarter is like we <laughs> we're always surprised when people care as much as they do. And but it's obviously a very rewarding thing uh, when when you when you actually see that they're interested. So, yeah, it's been an interesting renaissance of the U.S. watchmaking, really, because it went it was decimated in the 70s with the quartz crisis. And for you guys, I think you're about an hour, an hour and 20 minutes north of Chris and I, not that we live together, but that, and so it's interesting to think of a watch being assembled that close now, whereas you couldn't say that. What do you think, Chris? Maybe five or six years ago, that just wasn't a... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. 
Now, Sam, one note, we have to, uh, we, we do actually do our assembly now in Arizona, so it's no longer in Los Angeles. Oh, okay. Oh. <laughs> little caveat, little caveat. Um, yeah, yeah, little caveat. Um, and, uh, you know, basically, you know, we had uh, individual assembly technicians that we were working with in LA and doing everything very batch-based, and we found a really great partner in Arizona that's more of a, you know, facility, a factory. Um, and they're training young watch technicians and have a really incredible lead technician. They've been instrumental in our ability to scale assembly operations. That was one of the biggest bottlenecks was, especially with the more affordable quartz watches. I know um, a lot of the other great micro brands out there uh, also do assembly in the U.S., but that's on their more, you know, five, six, seven hundred dollar automatic watches. It's just lower volume with the quartz watches. Um, getting that volume with you know those individual technicians was was really really challenging. Definitely one of our biggest challenges. And and then yeah, it, it's a nature of scale as well in the sense that you know we started off without much like money or ability to do it. So we just went out to local watch shops, look lo local techs, and we're like, hey, can you assemble you know 100 watches at a time, 200 watches at a time? That was a band-aid solution. You know, as we scale, obviously, even what we're doing right now and and outsourcing to this the team uh, in Arizona. That's a band-aid solution in the sense that real security as we scale would be to bring it back in-house, bring it back to Los Angeles, have our own tech teams, but we're not, we don't have the resources to do that yet. So it's a, it's a growing cycle, but yeah, that would be the, that would be the ideal is, you know, and you know, whether it's a decade or now, it's like there is the Hamilton, what Hamilton once was in Lancaster. We're like that in Los Angeles. And, and you guys switched from, from uh, quartz to mechanical. So, you, I mean, you had some, you had some. You have some other, there's some technical ability that has, is, is there as well. You know, you, you're not necessarily the same person assembling a, you know, putting a quartz watch together, putting the hands on a quartz, popping it in, et cetera, versus, you know, the, the, the tech that's needed to, to handle your Miata movements, your, your automatic. Yeah, 100%, you know, making sure that timing's accurate. Um, and just, you know, you, you want a, a more capable, I guess, official or formal operation for that and it's been super valuable and we've kept our relationships with our techs that we've worked with over the years it's pretty cool we know a lot of watch technicians in la uh, some super talented and some that we still work with you know we'll go show them a new design and get feedback or you know work with them on repairs of existing watches so it's it's a cool community of people uh, and we're really happy to be um, you know putting some of our revenue towards that industry and those people the supply chain is just really, really intriguing the deeper you go into it. Like I, I know you guys mentioned there's the Weisses who are doing almost everything actually in-house. There's Vero, there's Vortec. Those are some other U.S. brands that are making cases, making dials. Um, most of the movements are still sourced um, elsewhere, but regardless, they're, they're actually building those components. Um, and it's, you know, the more we learn about uh, all of these big legacy brands that are also, they're not manufacturing cases in-house. Some are. And when we find out a brand is manufacturing cases, dials, hands in-house, it's, it's incredibly impressive and it's uh, incredibly respectable because it's not easy to do at all. It's a huge undertaking. Yeah. One thing that I would add in and like, it's just a kind of an, an interesting caveat to this whole discussion of the American assembly, American made is one, you could say it's an advantage or a disadvantage, but in, in the United States, just with trade regulation, the uh, FCC never, or FTC actually, sorry, Federal Trade Commission, never um, gave a specific percentage number of component, component value that equivalate or is equivalent to US made or made in USA. So essentially, it's just all or almost all, which is rare. Most countries have a, a strict percentage number, which you can then build up to or work around 
So uh, if, you know, I think hopefully, and I don't know if this will ever happen, but I think it would be in the best interest of, you know, American, like brands like us, whether in watch industry, otherwise to lobby or to put pressure on the government to say, Hey, like, just give us a number. We'll get, or we'll try our best to get it there. Because the, the real challenge is, is it 99%? Is it a hundred percent? 199 is really, really challenging. But if it's, you know, it's 60%, like in Swiss, if it's uh, whatever, it, whatever that number may be, simply sending it, say 75%, there, there's a path forward for brands. And, and then consumers also know or have a stronger sense of that's actually, you know, that's what that actually represents, where there's obviously people, brands like Shinola that can kind of work around and use, you uh, kind of miss, uh, you know, misconceptions or strange like phrasing on their marketing to help have people believe one thing where, where the actual component sourcing is another. So uh, that would be one little caveat is I think uh, watch brands would be American watch brands would be, would benefit from uh, having that number uh, laid out. While we're kind of talking a little inside baseball, if you can discuss what, what are you, when your customers, are your customers pushing you towards that? Um, are you, are you getting the feedback from your customers that, Hey, this is the direction we want to go, uh, and not just from a not just from a sort of a marketing standpoint, but just like what are maybe some of the differences that you see with with your Swiss automatics that you offer, your your Miyota movements that you offer, et cetera, et cetera. Like, what what are people drawn to there? So I'll just I can just because I have the survey in front of me because this is a great question and something that we we so we just ran a survey last week because uh, we're in the process of a, just like we had launched the automatic last year. We're in the process of launching our first dive watch this year, which we're really excited about. So we ran a survey uh, to about 3,000 people. So we just sent it as an email and said, hey, if you have a few minutes, take it. It was a fantastic. We had 3,000 people that took time. I think the average completion time was around eight minutes. Uh, it's a type form survey. So and there was about 18 questions and really awesome and a lot of long form feedback. And really, again, just another example of kind of a back and forth between customers. And, and actually, I think 60% of people who filled out the survey don't even own a Vare watch, which is cool because it shows that, you know, they may, we may not have won their trust yet, but they're, they're watching us closely and say, if these guys pull this off, then, then maybe I'll give them a chance. So that's kind of the dynamic. But on that specific question, we had that. What we, for those at least who had purchased a Vare watch, we asked what would be the biggest selling point or what was the biggest selling point? Number one was design and aesthetics at 37%. Number two was affordability value at 31%. And number three was U.S. assembly at 15%. Beyond that, number four, outdoor functionality, 10%, and then five was other. So you can see like 15% of our customers or people who have bought the watch, USA assembly was the number one priority. That's an inch, that gives you one perspective that that's really important to, you know, that's a sizable like portion of the audience. But there's obviously 85% who care about like don't prioritize that. So that's kind of a neat breakdown of. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. We, we thought it was interesting. On that note, uh, another question we asked and have asked for, for the past Kickstarters as well as, you know, would you prefer a Swiss made? Because we also offer Swiss made automatics. Would you prefer a Swiss made or a USA assembled? Not only do the USA assembled options win out. Now the USA assembled we do with Miota, so it's, it's more affordable, but that option wins out. And in addition, in the free form commentary, we get a ton of people who would actually like a, an Edda or a Swiss made movement, but still assembled in the US. So. Granted, you know, our audience, we've over the past years because of our American assembly and because of the, you know, American nature of our brand, we've drawn an audience that already is inclined to be more interested in that. We definitely get people out there who are like, why would you put American assembly on the dial or I, I couldn't care less, but a lot of people really care. 
Um, and a lot of people want more than, um, you know, more than just American Assembly. You know, we get comments, and I have I have canned responses ready to go because you get people on the Facebook comments, why just assembled? Why not made in USA? And as Reagan was saying, it's it's a, it's it's nearly impossible to actually make a made in USA watch just because of the. You, there's no movements in the U.S. unless you're doing it. Yeah, we, we, uh, Sam and I were talking that uh, either the last one or the previous. Uh, you know, just that where that maybe they make the machinery here, but but as far as a manufacturing component, it's not it's not available. So interesting. Yeah, yeah, and we also see it within the universe of you know the watch world. We see ourselves as kind of a design oriented brand. We lean a little bit into that rugged outdoor outdoorsy vibe, but like brands like Baltic or Fair or Nomos being a bit bigger. These are kind of um, very design centric or very clean. I, I don't know how you guys would describe them, but those are the brands that we really admire. And, and none of those are American brands. Uh, so that's kind of um, where we see as an opportunity is our American-ness are, are being based in California here uh, is a way of helping uh, distinguish us from you know, someone who's, who's considering those, those brands. Um, and, and hopefully, maybe if they're an American buyer, that that American assembly is the, the piece that that maybe uh, draws them towards us. So I just saw the the Dirty Dozen Swiss Automatic for the first time. That is a very very cool watch. Uh, it just that it we had uh, we had talked about it on the podcast a, a bunch about uh, you know the the old Dirty Dozen watches. And your comparison, in many cases, to Hamilton and, and other brands, you know, uh, Marathon, Laco, uh, et cetera, et cetera, some that you mentioned. Clean design, and you talk about those canned responses. Someone asked about the different movement with the small seconds, and you're like, yes, it's a different movement. It, it has to be. <laughs> it's literally mechanically different. It has different gears in it, et cetera. So what have you guys got? coming down the pipeline. We're actually working on a second iteration of that watch, which we're pretty excited about. So we did a, a limited release of that watch. We made 250 pieces total. Um, it has an ETA 2895, which is uh, rare, expensive. It's hard to get as with all ETA movements now. So we're working on a still Swiss made. Uh, we're gonna drop it to 38 millimeters to be a bit closer to the originals, which were 35 to 37. Uh, and we're gonna make it hand wound. Uh, so oh, we're great. super, yeah, we're super excited about that release. That will be be sometime in the in the summer. So that's going to be our yeah, and a similar price point. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Very, very close price point. It actually might be a little bit affordable, being the Hanwan. We're shooting to use a at a seven zero zero one. It's actually in the it's in a Stoa, um, and there's a there's a Nomos that used to use it. The, the biggest release upcoming is going to be our dive watch line. Um, and that's what we just surveyed about. So that's going to be, that'll be an automatic watch. We've been working on it for, you know, I guess years as a, as a watch brand owner, you kind of can only wear your watches. And so we've been wearing field watches for years <laughs> now, and we've both been insanely excited to get the opportunity to wear a dive watch. That's hard. Right. Cause you're both a uh, surfer, diver, you know, et cetera. So <laughs> in the water. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I'll let, um, I'll let Reagan elaborate on the feature set and kind of, design appearance and aesthetic well we, we feel like we're always moving closer to that dream watch but we're doing it with uh, i think i would describe it as like extreme caution um because you know we started the company ryan and i with our life savings um we're still just it's still like growing in that way and when we rely on you know the support of our customers and and we can't afford to have an unsuccessful launch uh it's, it's as simple as that every watch we release has been a huge success and we need to continue that path uh, you know, for years to come, which is why we're careful with it. But it, it's funny when you, if you compare the watch that Sam uh, reviewed back in 2018, 
I believe it was just a minimalist, our classic design, which is we're very, very simple. Um, but but it's something that, you know, even people who don't care about watches, they're just like, that's a clean, beautiful watch. I can wear that. You know, now we're getting into the complexities of, you know, these, you know, retro style divers and, you know, a Sapphire case wagon Edda's and all of these really uh, in-depth things which are expensive for us to build. Um, but they also represent risk. And even the, the, the thing about the, the Dirty Dozen is, you know, we initially offered it in the 40 millimeter, which is kind of that safe zone of sizing and, and with an automatic, which is more popular probably. But, but now that that was such a success, we can actually go back and create an even more authentic, slightly smaller, whether that's the 36, 38 and a manual wound, something that is like true to shape and form of those original World War II uh, models. And, and we can do that now with the confidence that, People loved the the forty millimeter. Now let's give them something that's even more purist. So it's it, for us. It's a we're we're moving on on a spectrum. We all of our watches are hopefully going to be improve over time, and we're hopefully you know we feel like we're just in many ways scratching the surface of you know we're excited to be offering a thirty six millimeter. Did we have the confidence to launch a thirty six before we launched a, launched our field watch or automatic? No. But now that we're ready for that, we're excited to get into thirty sixes. We're excited to get into all of the you know, the GMTs, everything else. What we do know from all of our surveying is that to this day, the dive watch is the most popular. It, like everything we've seen, that's what people want the most. There are obviously a lot of micro brands that only sell dive watches. And like from what we've seen, that's a, that's a pretty sound uh, economic decision. Um, so we're really excited to get in that space and hopefully, um, you know, show what we can do in it. And hopefully that wins new customers. And it will hopefully be you know, a springboard for even more like for Chrono, for, for more pieces that we, we, we're just dreaming of right now. You know, I see this with uh, wineries. I see this with uh, car manufacturers where they're like, okay, well, we just need to make, we need to make an SUV. We need to make a van. We need to make a truck. We need to make a car. And you're like, mm-hmm. guys, what, like, what are you good at? You know, like, what have you, what have you worked to figure out? And you kind of lose that. Um, whereas, you know, you guys are, you're, you know, taking one, one foot at a time, one step at a time, kind of moving into it. You've got some dial designs that uh, that you're that you're that all look amazing uh fun and sort of you know that you're that you're working with the community on very cool yeah i mean one another thing that probably tie what we think ties the i mean obviously affordability is a big piece is like um you know when you look back at what the average what a rolex samariner cost relative to like adjusted inflation back in 1952 or the cost of a dirty dozen it was a military watch. It was like a, it, it, the military, the, the government was buying these for, for soldiers. This isn't, so it's funny when you see some of the original Dirty Dozen brands do a, a special edition re-release, it's $4,000 <laughs> and you're like, we kind of lost the, uh, the every man spirit of it. So, so that's what our goal is just to build a watch. I mean, I mean, obviously a seven, $800 watch is, is very expensive. But our hope is like we still hope that's an affordable watch given the value, given that it has an edit. So like that, our, our premise is like let's make the affordable version of the watch everyone's dreaming of. And, 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 and even with the diver, we, like, people love the, the Rolex mill sub. But good luck. They're $100,000 uh, if you can afford that. And, and for other people, it's a grail watch. So why not do an homage to that or let's pull what, why do people love the mill sub? What, what is it about it? That's so exciting. And let's take that as an influence for our, that's kind of our thinking. Um, yeah. So regarding our, our upcoming uh, dive watch, incredibly excited about the release. We just ran uh, surveys and so we gathered a, a ton of really valuable data. We have some uh, core features that we've sort of 
had in the back of our minds for a while and are now confirmed. So it's going to be 39 millimeter diameter with a 40 millimeter bezel. Um, we're going to do a ceramic bezel. We're, we're, we were debating between sapphire and ceramic and um, after quite a bit of discussion with, you know, some, some watch industry folks and a lot of forum research, we're going to go with ceramic. Um, it'll have a 200 meter water resistance. So again, also kind of debated 200 versus 300 meters. And um, we really established that 200 meters is more than enough for any practical usage in a diver. And it enables us to keep thickness down, which we're excited about. Um, it will have a double dome sapphire crystal. Um, you know, we're going to have five dial variations. So Reagan produced some pretty uh, incredible dials and we sort of modified them and um, developed them over the past few months. So uh, we're really excited for those. Um, definitely a ton of loom in everything. I know it, that's like beyond anything else, loom's definitely one of the biggest points of and I think you guys got, you know, your early, your early field watch, people were like, ah, eh, the loom kind of thing, but, but it's a field watch, you know, whereas diver, yeah, it's got to have loom. It's got to have all the loom. Yeah. So we're going to pump it full of uh, super loom. It'll be, um, it'll be mixed styles of loom. We're still trying to determine the exact, um, you know, not, not grade, but the exact, you know, BGW nine versus C3 versus composition. Um, at, yeah, exactly. The exact composition. Thank you but a ton of loom, as much volume of loom as possible. Um, some will have applied indices, some will be painted directly on. Um, yeah, so that's... that's. Are you, so, you, so these five designs that you surveyed, these are on the table or you are going to have these five out? We're intending to have all five. So, wow. um, you know, we're, we're talking with our manufacturers now and it's this might be something we need to talk with you guys more in depth offline. It's intriguing. We uh, really beautiful dial designs that we're excited about that, people were pretty balanced on their opinions about. And our, our perception is, you know, we can produce a, a compatible case and compatible feature set. Dials are one of the easier components to make in a watch. Um, and with our stateside assembly, it's pretty easy to just create batches of watches with different dials. We like to make our customers happy. And if there are you know, hundreds of people intrigued in each dial, and we personally enjoy each dial and think each dial is beautiful in its own way, then why not? produce it and they'll still be within the same line of watches um, but they'll have you know each their own unique identity one thing that i've always found interesting about the brand is you started off very early on outdoors watch etc and there's a lot of companies that have outdoors sports watch surf watches but i think from memory you might be the only one that i've ever that i've ever specifically put in their warranty instructions that as long as the crown is sealed on there we will cover for like water ingress into the watch which can't think of even some of the major brands won't do that, I don't think. I mean, I think that's just something, uh, like, it really goes in line uh, what I was mentioning earlier with this idea of, um, you know, the way watches were built, uh, you know, 50 years ago, 100 years ago as, as tools. It's something that we've, we've really moved away from, uh, that a dive watch is more of a status symbol than a functional item. That's fine. I understand why, you know, you buy a Rolex for that purpose. But we, we what we want is we get most excited with customers that say, hey, I, I kayaked down the Grand Canyon uh, with my bear or I, you know, went on this three month uh, trip through Southeast Asia. With a, so that's the um, one we want that because it's, it's exciting. We think that you know, if people go through those adventures um, with with our watch or with any product, it's going to bring them closer to that product. 
And it's also good just going to show off what it can do. So again, like, and, and also it's another way we, like Ryan was just mentioning the 30 ATM versus 20 ATM. So what we'll say with the diver is like, we encourage, actually, maybe we don't want to encourage them to try to, to take it below 20, like, because that could be dangerous, but it's just, it's just kind of, it, it pokes at that ridiculousness of the thousand or yeah, 100 ATM or whatever it is. Just, just put it to the test. And you'll also notice that, you know, there's a lot of 10 ATM watch brands that never show a guy in the water with a watch. Or that's right. a, or Ryan was pointing out, I think it's maybe a Timex diver, 10 ATM, but it's sold on a leather strap. It's, it's like, what, you don't wanna take the leather in the salt water? Like, it's, it, the whole thing is kind of bizarre. So there's just like a little bit of unpacking of it. I actually just listened to the podcast, we were mentioning, I think, the pilot watch with the, with the chrome on the, the numeral. Like those, it's examples of that where it's like, what are they thinking? sort of thing. So that's kind of, uh, you know, that's why we do that water. Yeah. That is a, uh, just Reagan brought that up. That's a huge pet peeve of mine is a uh, brand selling water oriented watches, a guy like waist deep in the water and it comes on a leather strap and doesn't come with a, yeah, a strap made for funny. water usage. It's just, uh, <laughs> yeah. it's absurd because you're, it's, it's absolutely not intended for that purpose. And yet you're still explicitly marketing it for that. And so as you guys know, and some of the listeners, all of our watches are with two straps. So we sell a ton of our watches on a leather strap, but every single watch comes with an quote unquote ocean ready strap. So either nylon or silicone. Function first. Yes. Uh, you know, it, it, this is a tool and you start there and then we can talk about uh, variations of dials and things like that and, and how, you know, what straps you want to put it on. But yeah, check, yep. check those, those early boxes. Very cool. Yeah. Because it's, again, it comes down to, yo, we want the people to have this watch for five years. And, and what, if you work backwards and say, what is the biggest impediment for them having a watch for five years or 10 years? You know, what if you set it down, you go into the shower and then it steam floods it. Or what if, you know, you're at a birthday party and you come and pushes you in the pool. Th those are the things that, those are like the random life events that are going to ruin your watch. And let's, let's cover those bases first. Yeah. Again, scratching would be the next thing. Let's make sure every watch has sapphire. So screwed on crown, 10 ATM. Those are just the givens because we want to get to that five year, 10 year lifespan because that's what we think you know, people really want. And then from there, let's figure out the designs and everything else. But it really starts with those those key components of durability. Recording this podcast still with our stay-at-home orders, unfortunately. But one of the things that I've always found interesting about your brand in particular is that it's become quite, I would say, quite synonymous with brands at the moment where they're su rightly supporting medical workers, first responders, and things like that. But this is something that you guys have always done. I remember you did that special drive for the when there was fires for the firefighters there. And you offer a discount to not just military, but first responders, um, etc. So uh, what I like about it is you're, you don't make a big kind of song and dance about it. It's something that you, it obviously means a lot to you. So how did that come about? We've been a 1% uh, a for the planet member for years now, I guess. I mean, part of the starting the business when we started the business, not to sound cheesy, but it's nice to be able to help others. And as the business grows, we'll have more resources to be able to help others as well. But um, so 1% for the planet, it's been part of the ethos. And of course it, it helps with marketing as well. You know, people enjoy that. And with 1% for the planet, we get to give to organizations that we care about. So we give to ocean oriented organizations, surf rider, we give to a, a rivers uh, organization called freshwater trust and mountains organization and so that's always been incredible the the fire when you reference it there were pretty bad brush fires uh, i guess a year or two ago now 
that impacted our local communities pretty heavily. And so immediately we ran a, a campaign that uh, donated profits to to those. And most recently with COVID, you know, obviously there's people on the front lines and everyone. It, it's cool to see a sense of community in all of our communities. You know, people are sewing masks, people are um, donating time and energy and, you know, giving love to first responders and basically the people who you know it, we're fortunate to get to work remote and work from home there's a lot of people who aren't and, and people who are working and putting themselves at risk you know reagan and i thought it would be really great to figure a way to i don't know get get watches on those people's wrists um so we went back and forth with the structure of the campaign and ended up just saying you know we can do 50 percent off for the first 30 first responders or people who nominate first responders and we got an insane response relative to the size of our brand. We got over a hundred either doctors, firefighters, EMTs, uh, or people related to those people laying their hearts out and telling their stories. And um, so that in itself was cool. You know, Reagan and I were just sitting there reading people's stories. The fact that we could get wristwatches to them and have them using, you know, we've gotten pictures back, which we need to share as well from uh, doctors and nurses wearing our watches with all their, you know, protective gear in the hospital. So that's truly incredible. Yeah, it kind of goes back to what I was saying at the beginning of the, the chat is like we see ourselves, even though we're an online business, we're, you know, kind of remote, we don't really see our customers on a day to day. We still see ourselves like kind of like a main street ethos. It's a good mindset to be in is like, think of your customer as your neighbor. Like if you're, you know, you wouldn't, <laughs> if you're like selling to the guy who lives next, like right beside you, you're not going to like give them a watch that's going to fall apart in, in 20 days or when you fall in the water. It's just, it's that type of um, exploitative mentality that really, since the American watch industry collapsed in the 70s, unfortunately, much of the watch industry and much of many industries have been dominated by the wrong type of thinking and really profit-centered thinking and short-termism and ex big exits and, and all of this other stuff. And and that, that's good for a few people who are, you know, making the most profit, but it's really bad for the vast majority of people who are the customers. And so uh, we're a small part of a, what we think is a reversing of trend um, towards, you know, a slightly more compassion, but just generally more thoughtfulness about the products we're making. That was really fascinating. Thanks for uh, joining Chris and I on this uh, podcast. If you've got any questions, join us over on the Facebook group, Casual Watch Talk. As always, we appreciate you listening. And we'll see you next time on Casual Watch Talk. Thanks, guys. Bye.